0: Good morning again, everyone. This side is definitely awake. I'll be staring at you for most of the service. Um, No, I'm kidding. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, It's a wonderful privilege to be able to open up God's Word with you. We're going to be continuing our journey through the book of Mark. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, open up to Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 35. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 35. We've got a big chunk of text we're going to read. Um, So... Let's dive straight into it. It says the following, and he, talking about Jesus here, sorry, I jumped ahead. Jesus, talking about Jesus, uh, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee, and Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from the Tyre and Sidon. on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might uh, be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the 12, Simon, whom he gave uh, the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name uh, Boerges, Uh, That is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by beelzebub and by the prince of demons, uh, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. And whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. It's it's so encouraging to us. It's so important for us to be able to center our lives on it this morning. And so we ask, Lord, as I preach, that the words that come out of my mouth won't be my own. But any that are mine, may they fall on deaf ears, but may your words go forward and achieve its purpose. May we love you after this, Lord. May we feel your presence during the service, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we find ourselves in a bit of an intense uh, section of scripture, so much was happening right. Jesus has been casting out demons and healing many to a point that a crowd has gathered that is massive, that he is worried that he might be crushed so he has to hop onto a boat. He then heads up a mountain and he calls his 12 apostles and he gives them a mission. His family thinks he's lost his mind and they try to seize him. We have the scribes coming down from Jerusalem to come and check out his ministry to see if he's doing okay. And they came from Jerusalem. They were the the bigwigs. They weren't the plebs that were put out in the other sections. But here were these big guys coming to test his ministry. And they pretty much say, he must have the prince of demons in him in order to do this. There's a small little thing of baptism, I mean, not baptism, uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that is mentioned. Yet, the thing that I want to focus on this morning, and I want to talk on the most, and we'll touch on the others, it comes right near the end, where Jesus makes this most remarkable statement. He talks about who is his mother and brother. Jesus, in this statement, tells us what it, the, the very meaning, in its richest sense, of what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian, to follow this wonderful Jesus that we have been speaking about means that we are able to call God Father and call Jesus our brother. We are able to say, as Christians, that we are children of God. And we see that in the text. He says it there, he says, and he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those that sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Remarkable. Absolutely remarkable that we are able to call ourselves children of God. Now, as we read that, I want us to make sure that we don't misunderstand it. We must not assume that what Jesus is saying here is that he is upset and angry with his mom and his brothers and sisters to the extent that he has cast them off as a family. And because if we, if we have that view, what happens is we downplay two things. We downplay one, his love we had, he had for his mom and dad, and two, we downplay what he's saying about us. In actual fact, who can possibly imagine the love that Christ had for Mary? His mother, the one that nursed him, the one that was there to change his nappy, the one that fed him that one was who was there to comfort him when he fell out of a tree and hurt himself the one that was able to encourage him and cheer him on who taught him how to speak who was his i'm sure like my boys as they looked to their mom the most important person in the world that christ loved mary just like that and if not more so because he's perfect how much would have jesus have loved his siblings I know there's such thing as sibling rivalry, and there's this can be this hate tension sometimes i, I don 't know that I was an only child and I got stepsisters when I was eighteen, so i didn 't have any of that but here we, we we can imagine that Jesus played with them and had fun and at the age of fifteen after the age of twelve, at the very least, we know that Jesus became head of the home when Joseph died, and his hat would have changed to provide of for his brothers and sisters, working hard, taking over the family business in order to provide for them and care for them. Jesus loved them with a tremendous amount of love. And if anything, we as Christians know that Christ's love isn't conditional, it's unconditional. How much more so for his own family? He would have loved them. And that means when Christ looks at us and he says you are my brothers and sisters. He's not just making a statement in order to reject his family, but he is saying we are children of God, it's remarkable. But who gets to say this? Who gets to call a God father, call themselves a child of God? Does anyone get to say that? Does everyone get to make that comment? And the answer is no. New Testament clearly tells us that not everyone is able to, uh, to make that comment, but only those who come to an understanding that Jesus Christ is Lord. Only those who have repented of their sins and have come to know Jesus as Savior, then in that moment do we become children of God. And we see this in Galatians 3, verses 26. It says this, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. That's in Christ and through faith. Through faith alone in Jesus do you become a child of God. It is a gift that is given to you. We see again Jesus says something in in John 14, verse 6, that famous uh, verse, it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You cannot come to know God unless you come through Christ, and you cannot come to know God as Father Unless you come to know Jesus. So being born again is what is required, not just being simply physically born. Does that make sense? It's being born again. We see this in John 1, verses 12 and 13 but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, who believed that he died for them, who believed that he was the son of God, who believed he was the one who was sent to save the world, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor the will of flesh nor the will of man, but of God. This is a wonderful thing. And the beauty of this means that if it is through Jesus, it is available to all. As we've been praying this morning and speaking about it as how it's been emphasizing, this ability to be able to become a child of God is available to all. Now, there might be some of you in this room or watching online who might assume that that's not for you. That might be the case for most, but, but certainly not for you. And that might be for a number of reasons. And I think primarily people think that because of a heinous sin in which they have committed their, their past is so horrible, it's, it's, it's so bad that they could never become a child of God. Maybe the assumption is, well, I know I've been saved, but that's, that's the best that it gets. I don't really get to call myself of a child of God because of what I have done. And and if that's the case, or whatever it might be for you this morning, I want to point out to you verse 28. <laughs> a glorious verse that often gets lost in this text. And verse 28 says this, truly, or I... Uh, Assuredly, I tell you, amen, completely, guaranteed, Jesus says, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. All sins will be forgiven, whatever blasphemies. Now, you might, we have read the text this morning, so I can't skip over it. You might be saying, oh, but what about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I don't want to get sidetracked this morning, but let me quickly just explain that to you. What is this unforgivable sin? Essentially, it is this. It is that when we have received the revelation of Jesus Christ over and over again of who He is, that He is the Son of God, that He has died for our sins, and the Holy Spirit has revealed that to us and revealed that to us, and we keep on rejecting it and rejecting it and rejecting it, that our hearts can become calloused and hardened to the point that we never ever go back to Christ. Does that make sense? That we never go to him. And if we never go to Jesus because we like the scribes, say he's, a, he's got demons or like the world, oh, he was just a good teacher or he never existed, whatever the argument might be. If we come to those conclusions, then we can never find forgiveness because forgiveness is only found in Jesus the son of God, the one who's died for our sins. And if you don't believe that, well then there is no way for sin to be forgiven. So so let me assure you that if you were Christian, it's an impossibility to, to do. And I would even go so far to say that I would I would not make that claim on anyone's life until they had died. Because scripture shows us that the most hardened and calloused hearts get changed in moments. And so I, I don't want us to get distracted by this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and what it might be this morning. Let's go back to that thing. All sins will be forgiven, the children of man. All sins. Whatever heinous sin that you have committed, whatever past that you might have, the promise is that the blood of Christ, the atonement of Jesus, the work that he has done on the cross is sufficient for you. J.C. Rowe, one of my my favorite dead theologians, he makes this comment about the extent of the atonement of Christ and what He has done, his sin, and how much it is forgiven. He says this, the sins of youth and age, the sins of head, hand, tongue, imagination, sins against all God's commandments, the sins of persecutors like Saul, the sins of idolaters like Manasseh, the sins of open enemies of Christ like the Jews who crucified him, the sins of backsliders from Christ like Peter, All, all may be forgiven. The blood of Christ can cleanse all away. The righteousness of Christ can cover all and hide all from God's eyes. That is one of the glorious things about the gospel is that our sins are forgiven. We have received forgiveness in full. Our pardon is free. We've had complete remission. Amen? It's the wonders of the gospel. Acts 13, verses 38 to 39 says, Through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything. We have been justified. It's a legal term. It's, it's, it, it, to justification means that we have been made as if we had never sinned. Justification gives us a freedom, a forgiveness and a, uh, of our past sins and guarantees us an acceptance for the future. It's wonderful that we now, who were once at enmity with God, enemies with Him, are able, to, this judge who rightfully would judge us, but now that Christ has taken that judgment upon Himself, that enmity is gone and we are at peace with this holy judge. It's this wonderful, wonderful thing. It's a glorious part of the gospel. But what Christ preaches to us this morning is that the extent of what Jesus has done on the cross does not stop at the fact that he has just made us right with a judge. But rather what Jesus has done for us is he has taken us from being an enemy of God made us right with the judge and then made the judge our father and that is and that is this beautiful imagery it's, a, it's, it's, it's scripture talked about being adopted into the family of God we didn't earn it we're not there by nature, but because of the work of Jesus we have been adopted in and we can come to him as father and that means for us that we can have this wonderful relationship with him. You see, the reason why adoption is so important and and, and something that we have to understand as Christians is because if it didn't exist, what would happen is Christ would have died for us, justified us, made peace with us and the judge, but we would have been neutral in relationship. He would have just been that judge and we would have been someone who didn't deserve punishment anymore but adoption takes that relationship further in that now we can have a God who we know and love and can have an intimate relationship with. It's wonderful. And if that doesn't blow your mind this morning, I want you to go and think about it and dwell on it as a Christian because it is the most glorious part of the gospel that we get to call God Father, that we get to call Jesus our brother, that we get to know him in such a relationship. We see this proclaimed for us in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. It says, God sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoptions as sons. Ephesians 1 verse 5, just think that maybe Paul made an error when he wrote that. He says, he predestined us as uh, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to his purpose of his will. John 1 verses 3 and 1 says, see what kind of love. The love of God is demonstrated not only on the cross. There, uh, there's another element to it as well. He's demonstrated in, in the, that the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. This is why J.R. J. Packer, a great theologian, could rightfully say to be, right with the God, uh, to be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. So much greater. Because now we don't have to timidly come into the courtroom of this judge, but rather we can run in confidently because we know he's also our father. It's glorious. And I I hope that that stirs a love in your heart this morning. But what that does for us is it's not just a a uh, a theological thought, theoretical thing that we speak about and think about, but rather it becomes a wonderful lens on the way we live our lives. It becomes the basis for our life. So when we miss this, we miss how to live as Christians. When we miss this, we miss how we should relate to God, our Father. And so it's a vital doctrine that we wrap our heads around and believe about ourselves. It gives us a brand new identity and it shapes our entire Christian life. And the first thing that it does, and and maybe it's uh, the most obvious, but it shapes our conduct, shapes the way we live in action. I knew of a lady, a uh, wonderful lady um, who happened to also have a uh, wonderful Christian lady who happened to have a foul mouth on her and uh, enjoyed to have uh, a good party. And when you combined the two, the foul mouth got even worse. And uh, when she was challenged on her actions and said, look, you need to, the way you're acting, you just need to maybe sort that out. And uh, her comment was, and I'm sure you might have heard this before, or maybe even say to yourself, I just got to be myself. I just want to be me. I don't want to be a hypocrite. This is who I am and and that's how I'm going to be. But what this person and others like her fail to realize is that she wasn't acting who she was because who we are in Christ is children of God. And what that requires us as Christians is to act like it, to have that mentality and to think I am a child of God and so I ought to act like one. And, 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 and we see this in, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, that famous verse says, If anyone is in Christ, is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You're someone new. Or in John uh, uh, 1 John 3, verse 2a, it says, Behold, we are children, God's children now. This is not just a future thing. It's a now thing. And so there's a requirement for us to act like children of God Now so there's three principles i want to talk around this idea of conduct and the first one is that we need to be imitators of god children love to imitate their parents sometimes for the good and for the bad right my my son has this wonderful saying when you say thank you to him if he gives you something and you say thank you he goes you're welcome it's so sweet and he gets that from his mother because that's exactly what Alyssa would say if you are said thank you to her. She'd say you're welcome. Because he's heard her say it so much, he's repeated it and started to imitate it. Now, it can sometimes be for the bad as well. Yes, oh, yesterday, yes, yesterday, I, I, my son and I, Alyssa and Jesse, were in the, He was in the pram. We were walking up the street, riding our bikes, and this is a bad example, um, or it's a good example of a bad example, and. Uh, and a car, one of those with a big exhaust, loud, comes zooming past it. And out of frustration, because it was quite close, I go, oh, what a loser. And I shouldn't have said that out of frustration. And my son starts going, oh, what a loser? He starts to repeat it. And then another car started coming by. He said, dad, watch out, a loser's coming. I'm like, oh. Now I have to try to explain that he's not allowed to say that after I've just said it. But we, as, as, and clearly me as well, <laughs> need to imitate God. And we see this in Ephesians 1 verse 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up, uh, gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Oh man, we get to look at our older sibling, Jesus. We get to look at the Father as these perfect examples who don't say things in frustration when cars drive past them and get to model our lives around them. We are to imitate them and to do so well. And when we do so, we become agents of love because that's how God lives and he lived. The second principle is that when we change our conduct around this is we start to glorify the Father. We become people who are focused on glorifying God. Matt and I had breakfast on Friday morning. It's our day off, and we went for a run. And uh, then we decided to stop off and have some breakfast. And we were chatting, and you can clearly see I need some help with parenting. And uh, we're talking about parenting and different things. And he made his comments. There was a whole lot of context behind it, but he made a comment where he said when he was young, he loved to do things that made his parents proud. He loved to do conduct and act in a way that when his mom or dad looked in, man, I'm just so proud of you of doing that. And in a similar way, we as children of God need to strive in order to glorify our father. We live lives in, in this world so that when people look upon us, they go to their dad uh, go to, and go, wow, look at those people. I, I love it when I hear news about Malachi's good behavior. Oh, man, it makes me so proud of him. And I feel like, oh, yes, because of his conduct. And in a similar way, we should, we should, we should act like that as well. Yeah, Matthew, Matthew 5, verse 6, I think I might have read it, but I'm going to read it again. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And so it becomes our constant concern to make sure that we live holy lives for Christ and for the glory of the Father. We see this in, in, in the way Jesus teaches us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's not only a prayer that we pray for others. Lord, may they live in a way that, you, that your name might be glorified and separated and made holy in this world. No, we pray it so that we too could live like that. Lord, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name in my actions today. It becomes the way we live, it changes our conduct. Also, and this must not be confused with the second uh, principle of glorifying the Father, we also are to live in a way that pleases Him. We see that in our text. It says, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, sister, and mother. We are to live for His will, not our own. We are to live for His will, not uh, those around us. We live for an audience of one. In Matthew 6, Jesus teaches us how to live righteous lives, and he gives three examples of one, of giving of alms, of fasting, and prayer. And in those examples, each time he says, don't do it for others. So when you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. i got that right, right hand and left hand. When you, when you fast, make sure you clean yourself up so that nobody knows. Don't put on rags and dust. Don't, don't, do, don't do it for the others to see When you pray, don't stand on the street and pray. Don't babble along like those other people. Just pray and and go into a room and pray quietly by yourself. Don't do it for others. Why? Because our actions aren't so that we might get the pat on the back for ourselves so that others might be pleased with us, but rather we do the actions so that God might see. And if anyone might happen to have a window in, they will glorify God for it, not us. And so those become ways in in which we are to... uh, uh, conduct ourselves in light of the fact that we are children of God but also this gives us our second point it helps us to become people who have intimate relationship with him to know him to enjoy him as a a, a father and a son or as as parents with children my my boy at the moment has really just got into the the stage of saying I love you a lot it's just wonderful he runs up to me. I love you, Dad. Oh, make my heart warm. I'm leaving the house this morning. I've already given him a hug and a kiss goodbye. Dad, I want another hug and a kiss. Oh, how wonderful it is to have that kind of relationship. How much more can we have that with God? We can have this wonderful, intimate relationship with Him and know Him and enjoy His love and our love for Him. This is what it means to be a child of God. And we see that in our text. Jesus calls the 12 to himself. He, he, he appoints the 12 apostles and he says he called them to himself. What is the first thing it says there? It says this. It says he calls them to himself so that they might be with him. Yes, he sends them out to preach and cast out demons. But well, the first thing is that they might be with him. That they might hang out and enjoy him and delight in him and know him, the first thing about being a child of God is not so much the conduct, and I know I started off like that. The first thing about being a child of God this morning is so that you might just enjoy him and be with him. How's it going? How's your time with him? How awful it is when parents and children are estranged. Don't let that be with your case with you and, and the father. I know that might be the case with maybe some of your earthly relationships, but don't let that be with the father. In heaven. And and that means for us prayer, particularly prayer, becomes one of the most wonderful ways to enjoy Him. Prayer changes. Prayer doesn't become this mechanical process that we have put in place to manipulate the hand of God to get the things that we need. How often do we come to pray? Just so that we might wrestle God's arms that we might get what we want. But as we realize that we've got this new relationship with Him, prayer changes drastically in that now we can come to Him as a Father who knows our needs and wants to give it to us. Wonderful, it's different, but it's beautiful. Prayer also doesn't become something that we have to do in order to earn His love. It's not this religious act that we have to tick off all the time so that He might still love us but rather as the perfect father, he loves us unconditionally, and prayer isn't a way to earn his love, but rather to access the fullness of love already given to us. To come and enjoy it and delight in him. Jesus says this wonderfully for us in, in Matthew 7, verses seven to 11. He says this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek uh, and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or, do you, or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? It just changes the way we understand prayer, doesn't it? And it becomes this wonderful thing of enjoying him and knowing that he knows our needs and we can come to him and experience Him, and and ask, and receive. The next thing is that becoming a child of God means that we also get given a purpose. We also get given a purpose. We see this in Ephesians 2 verse 10. Uh, in Ephesians 1 verse 5, it told how we were predestined for adoption. Well, this text talk, talks about how before the foundations of the world, we were given a work to do. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, with God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Each and every single one of us as children of God get to be a part of extending this king's kingdom. You and I as children of God have been given responsibility in order to extend the kingdom of our dad's. It's a wonderful thing. Lack of purposeless, a lack of purpose is an awful thing to be at, but you have been given a purpose, and not just for the moment, but one that will have an eternal effect. You have been given a task to do. Now, each and every single one of us who are Christian in this room have that task. It's going to be different. We're in different contexts. We have different gifts. We have different talents. We have different people around us. We're at different stages of life. But each and every single one of us have been given a task with one purpose, and that is to make disciples of all nations. It's going to do that. Now, as I say that and as Howie challenges us this morning to pray for those who are lost and we start to think of names that come to head our heads and, and, and friends that are around us that we might need to go and share the gospel, I understand that that becomes a little daunting. But may I encourage you from the text that we have this morning. Jesus calls the 12 apostles to himself. Now. Apostles are, uh, especially here in in capital A, Apostles was a unique high um, office in the church. There there aren't any more of them around. There were 14 men that ever were given this wonderful privilege to be apostles. 12 listed in the text. Judas, if you want to count him, is included. And then you've got Matthias who replaces Judas because Judas, after he betrayed Jesus, kills himself. And then we have Paul. So 13 who lived on to make Christ known in this world. This wonderful office. But yet what I love about this text is that it goes on to list their names. And it it gives us a bit of a clue about who they were. And I want to just straight off the bat tell you that while these men did great things, they were pretty ordinary. We have Peter who starts off in this text. Simon also known as Peter. Peter was bold and courageous, yes, incredibly unstable. One minute he's walking on water, the next minute he's sinking in it. One minute he's standing saying, Jesus, I will die for you. And the next minute he's denying him three
1: times.
0: One minute he's standing in front of a crowd and preaches the first sermon, and we see 3,000 people get saved. Later on, as we see in Galatians 2, he denies the gospel in order out of fear, out of just a small group of men. We have James and John who were upper class and sophisticated. More fishermen, yes, but more likely wealthy because they had servants. So they probably had a number of businesses. And yet these men who were upper class and sophisticated and had wealth also were called sons of thunder because they had a bad temper on them. You know you have a bad temper when Jesus gives you that nickname. They were angry. Then you have Andrew. Who was outshone by his more gifted and talented brother Peter? You have Thomas, who was known for his doubting and pessimism. You have Bartholomew, who was known for his sincerity. You have Philip, James of Alpheus, and Thaddeus, who are hardly ever mentioned outside of this text in the Gospels. They lived completely. In the background, you have Simon the Zealot, who was a zealot because he hated the institution of Rome, and he was rebelling against it, probably out of violence and terrorism, hated them. But then on the other end, on the other end of the scale, you've got Levi, who betrays Israel, goes and works for the institution of Rome, and tax silly those who were his family and his people. Don't know how that went down in the disciples. They probably took a long time to reconcile. And then you have Judas. <laughs> enough said, betrays him. These men weren't extraordinary, but rather, they were extraordinary. And yet they turned the world upside down. And I say that to you this morning because I want you to know that you don't have to be something special. You are, you're a child of God, but you don't have to be this uber-gifted person. All you have to do is be faithful to the task that you've been given. Because it's never been about you, but about our Father who does the work anyway. He's the one who does the work. He's the one who's mighty to save. We sang that this morning. And all you have to do is be faithful in your stammering of the gospel. To mumble it out. And don't worry, God's the one that changes hearts to that phrase. That idea that you have, go ahead and do it. It might be small, but you never know, it might change lives, it might change neighborhoods, it might change cities, it might change a nation. Because it's not about you, it's about the God who empowers you with his Holy Spirit. He's your loving Father. When we understand that we are children of God, our lives are radically different. And I know sometimes we sing about it in children's songs and it seems fluffy, but church, I want you to know this is the most glorious thing that Christ has ever done for you. That he would save you, not only from the gutter into a decent life, but into one that you are a child of God. And in it, you experience the greatest part of God's love. And it gives us hope. It gives us eternal hope we as Christians are all a, a lot about what's happening in the future, aren't we? And this gives us an assurance because we see in a number of different texts that we are going to be heirs. Galatians 4 verse 7 says, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And I want you to know that our Father has an Im- immeasurable wealth, and you're going to inherit it. And if God would love his children so much that he would die for them, and he is the perfect, perfect father, then we can be sure that he is gonna make every effort to extend to us the fullness of his love and to make sure that we get home one day. It's a glorious, glorious gospel. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much that we can call you exactly that. That you are Father in heaven. So, so wonderful. Lord, I pray for us this morning. I pray for those who know you and our children, uh, your children already. I ask, Lord, that you would do a massive work in their heart. That you would change them and shape them. That they would understand the magnitude of, of, of what you've done for them. That they would delight in you and enjoy you. But also, Lord, as a result, they would live out the purpose that you've called them to live feel like that's for us this morning, to be bold and courageous, knowing that you've given us a task and that you will be there with us. We thank you so much for the cross. We thank you that we justified, but we thank you that you adopted us as well. We pray this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. Please stand. We're going to respond to this word in in one last song.
1: Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations for now and forevermore. Father, we thank you that we're not losers because of what Jesus has done for us. Thank you for your wonderful love and grace. Thank you for reminding us that all our sins have been forgiven and that you are the only one that can forgive them because of what you did on the cross. And so thank you too for the wonderful privilege of being able to call you our Father and Brother, that you are the living God, And so as we just leave this place, our desire is to become more and more like you. Make us more righteous, we pray, Lord Jesus. Let us be faithful.